Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, God, gardening, church, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. I'm Cody Stopper. And this is Craig Morton. On this podcast, we talk to writers, teachers, activists, and we seek some wisdom. And as always, we are allergic to big words, but not to big ideas. Profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. Hi, this is Craig from the Albert's Holy Blue Collar Podcast, and I wanted to give a short, brief introduction to today's interview. It's not our normal banter where we go back and forth and chit-chat with each other and talk about a variety of other things. And if you've been following along in this series on Christian nationalism, usually we take some time to identify certain aspects of Christian nationalism and to identify some of the current news articles and some of the things that are going on in U.S. culture that uh, exemplify aspects of Christian uh, nationalism. Well, we're, we're not doing that this time. Cody and I have had a hard time getting together over the summer and completing uh, our podcast projects, but we did have time uh, late spring to get together with Sarah Augustine and talk with her about aspects of Christian nationalism and issues pertaining to indigenous uh, rights and advocacy. So hopefully you will enjoy this conversation that we had with Sarah Augustine and around the concept of dismantling the doctrine of discovery. Welcome uh, to this conversation with Sarah Augustine. I'm Craig. Um, I'm Cody. Crash Test Craig. I haven't been called Crash Test Craig for a long time. I wasn't sure if you still wanted to be called that. So I was it, holding it off works. on it. I like it, it works. I bump I bump into things from uh, frequently. So and, and and are you still code man? Code master, code man. There you go. All right. So <laughs> Cody and I have a, a guest, Sarah Augustine, as I mentioned, and Sarah it, has been involved with working on issues related to indigenous rights. And uh, I've become familiar with her work through Anabaptist publishing. Uh, both in uh, a magazine called Anabaptist World, as well as Herald Press that uh, uh, published a book called The Land is Not Empty. And one of the uh, things that I learned through reading uh, The Land is Not Empty is that Sarah's experience is not only within the United States, but it also kind of has that global uh, connection. And I don't know if I'm going to say the name of the country correctly, but it's Suriname, I believe. Right. And uh, yep. she talks about uh, that involvement, connections with the United Nations, and a wide variety of things. And there's too much for me to say, and I know I'll leave something out. So, Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself? You bet. Well, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here with you both. Um, so I am originally um, a Tewa woman from what is now known as northern New Mexico, and I live currently on the homeland of the Confederated Bands and Tribes of the Yakima Nation, um, that is um, the Yakima Indian Reservation here in central Washington. And so I've lived here 17 years now. Hmm. And um, and I want to start by just acknowledging 
um, the elders here and the work they've done to to protect the sacred waters and these lands that um, I've been privileged to be a guest and a neighbor on. So I am also the executive director of the Coalition to Dismantle the Doctrine of Discovery, which is an ecumenical coalition um, that aims to dismantle, um, well, the doctrine of discovery. And I guess we'll get into exactly what that is, but that's what I do um, with my time and with my life energy um, as a Native woman. The concept of dismantling a doctrine sounds kind of interesting because if I were, to, you know, if I were somebody asked, you know, what what's a what's a doctrine that I hold on to? I'd say, oh, the you know doctrine of the, uh, the of the Trinity. And it's like, well, how do you dismantle a a, a, a kind of an abstract concept? But for you, that's not really an abstract concept. The, the the that aspect of discovery, it's very concrete and has really historical impact. Where where did that doctrine come from? How did it come to be? And what are what are some of the impacts of that doctrine? Oh, sure. So, so I appreciate what you're saying in that you're thinking of it as being a religious doctrine, which Correct. it is. It has its foundation mm -hmm. yep. in um, several Catholic papal bulls. This is really at the time of, of um, the great exploration out of Europe, when European states um, were, were, had developed the technology to be able to navigate oceans um, with a lot of people. And so they were exploring and, um, and hoping to expand their territories. And so the Pope at that time provided the first real international law explaining how that exploration would go about. And the discovery was this idea that the first European Christian state to land in a place and plant their flag, they had the right to, to that place. And so that's really what the discovery doctrine was about originally. But I want to be really clear that the Discovery Doctrine was adopted into the legal canon in the United States mm -hmm. in 1823 in a right. series of Supreme Court decisions called the Marshall Decisions. So the Doctrine of Discovery is an expansive legal doctrine that oh, wow. shapes reality for Indigenous peoples today. So if you were to ask yourself, how would you dismantle the doctrine of segregation? Also a legal doctrine. Mm. Right. It's not abstract, right? It's it's tangible, right, <laughs> and right? And so that is the doctrine that we're seeking to dismantle. This legal doctrine. It's not just the legal doctrine in the United States, but around the world, and it shapes reality for Indigenous peoples and um, in every aspect. In fact, it's threaded through all of our institutions, and there are yeah. hundreds of laws based upon that legal doctrine. So yeah. that's what we're attempting to dismantle. That is a huge project. So uh, how did you? get started on that dismantling project how did it what 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 started it or has this been something you've thought about since childhood no not at all actually i was working in the guiana shield which is the northern territory in south american continent i was working there at the invitation of the indig indigenous tribes um, who were struggling with health impacts from gold mining and so um, i was there in a and a scientific team, a multidisciplinary team, as a social scientist, and <clears throat> was really surprised. And I could not understand how foreigners, and by that I mean United States and Canadian mining companies, could gain uh, mining concessions on the traditional lands of indigenous peoples without their consent. 
and without any benefit to them. And this gold mining is really impacting the health of the indigenous people there. It con continues to to this very day. That that work began for me in 2004, and the the well-being of the people that I've been working with all these years has only deteriorated since that time. So gold mining has um, detrimental health impacts and neurological impacts and a variety of impacts. And then there's also, you know, a gold rush and speculators and, you know, the rise of um, other kinds of disease um, as a result of um, pools of stagnant water associated with mining in the river and so on. So it's just tons of health impacts. And I was really just couldn't understand how can this happen? And so I learned about the doctrine of discovery as a concept for the first time from Robert Miller's book, which came out in 2006, Native America Discovered and Conquered. And this book really laid out um, the legal um, basis for the doctrine of discovery, um, really beginning with Thomas Jefferson. And so I was lucky enough to meet him, Bob Miller, because he came through the reservation where I live on a book tour for this book in 2007. So I was able to meet him and I read his book and I was like, oh, this is it. This is how this is possible. <laughs> oh my gosh, you know, the Catholic Pope at the time gave this um, right to European states to own everything that they landed on. Anything that, you know, there's this race among European states to discover these territories. And the Pope gave the right, the legal right and the moral authority to Christians to own wherever they landed. And then that that stake has been passed down from colonial government to colonial government and excludes indigenous people. So I was able to understand that. And so then in 2011, when the World Council of Churches asked me to write a repudiation statement, or the statement repudiating the doctrine of discovery on behalf of the World Council of Churches, I called Bob Miller and asked him if he wanted to write it with me. <laughs> and so he said, hmm. yes, we've worked together since. But awesome. he reached out to some other scholars as well, Steve Newcomb, John Diefenbacher Kral, and Oren Lyons, and together we wrote that statement. And that's really, I think, when I when I really got involved in this work in the church, and specifically in an ecumenical context. So you 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 mentioned you know growing up in New Mexico, um, mm -hmm. and uh, you mentioned being in South America. And in my mind, when I think of doctrine of discovery. Um, I tend to think of conquistadors and the Spanish, you know, um, waves that came in through, um, you know, South and Central America and in, into North America. And one of the things that I've discovered through looking and discovering the about the doctrine of discovery, it wasn't just a Spanish thing. No. But the, the the Dutch and the French and the Germans were involved in Africa. The Dutch in Indonesia are it. it, it so this doctrine of discovery is a global thing, correct? Yes, and the British also participated, even though they were mm, not a yes, Catholic state, right. because, because the Catholic Church established really the first international law um, over, you know, European states, so that European states would be able to have some kind of guidelines for how they were going to share out um, the spoils of what they found. So yes, this was very much a global um, project, and, um, and it, all those those states that you've named, all of the, the those nations that were recipients of these, of really imperialism, still have colonial structure in their law. 
that defines access to land and wealth for indigenous people to this day. I saw uh, that okay. I saw oh, in um, I, when I was looking up a couple of days ago um, about the discovery doctrine. I saw in uh, was it just this year that the Catholic Church actually officially repudiated the doctrine? Is that correct? I th well, think that was within the last few weeks, wasn't it? Yeah, they issued a statement on March 30th. Um, okay. So that's so. just a few weeks ago. Um, and it basically the statement is titled The Joint Statement of the Diasteries of Culture and Education and for Promoting Integral Human Development on the Doctrine of Discovery. So it doesn't exactly say repudiation statement, but okay. <laughs> this, okay. is, this statement of the Catholic Church disavowing it. Yes. Mm, disavowing. Okay. Disavowing. Okay. Well, that's what I, those are my words. It doesn't say okay. that. Sure, sure, sure. sure. <laughs> okay. So my question stems from uh, let's say the doctrine is dismantled or fully officially repudiated. Does it have, I can understand future, you know, uh, impacts. Are there anything that, can retroactively be impacted or undone. Okay, so so I'm gonna be nerdy on you here for a minute, guys. I hope you'll excuse me if it gets to be too much to say, stop, Sarah, stop <laughs> Okay, so we're, we're really looking at a couple of papal bulls here. One is called Dum Diversus, which was written in 1452, and Romanus Pontifex, those two I'm gonna focus on, that's 1455, and also Inter Hetera. But, but these, Papal bulls were also the basis for slavery. Okay, so these are right. also the basis, the the the, the, the um, doctrinal or theological cover that justifies slavery oh, wow. in the context of um, uh, the the, um, the the wars that were going on in Africa at that time, and so um, and in the Middle East, really. And so, you know, if I were to say to you. Well, gee, if the Catholic Church has said, you know, they, they take it back, does that change slavery in the United States? Hmm. No. <laughs> well, right, yeah. because, but why not? Uh, it, I mean, it, because the, the effects are reverberate forward forever. They can't, <laughs> there's no undoing and just can't undo the, the uh, damage. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, yes, and so I guess, the, the way I would frame that is that it's it's expressed in the law and then in in laws that are based upon that law. We call that precedent in the United States. Right. So mm -hmm. as you as you enshrine something in the canon in our system, and this is the European system too. So it's in a lot of colonial nations across the world, a lot of nations that is to say who experienced colonization. You know, it's embedded in the law, and then there there are subsequent laws based on that original decision, and so then it becomes threaded through all the institutions mm. of the society. And so, so what did it take to end slavery? Sorry for the civics lesson here. Do you remember? No, this is excellent. Yeah, because <laughs> what what so what I hear is is so it, out of a similar or a same uh, concept, we have slavery, and then everything that came out of slavery. But there's a jump. It goes from the, being this church doctrine, this kind of ecclesial insider idea, and jumps into uh, legal precedent in states and nations around the world. And and the church can say anything they want to about pulling it back, but now it's it's locked into law. Yes. And 
And so even if there's an emancipation proclamation and that aspect is taken out of the law and, and the 14th Amendment and, and, and et cetera, it's, we still have these long-lasting ramifications with oh. Jim Crow and segregation and new Jim Crow, and it just keeps going. Right. Regardless of what the church said or what had happened in the past. Right. And so, you know, it took a constitutional amendment to put an right. end to slavery. And it took Supreme Court decisions to put an end to segregation, I would say. I mean, I'm, right. I'm not a legal scholar like Bob, but that's what I would say. And, and it's going to take similar <laughs> kinds of um, mechanisms to to Under put an end to discovery in this country. And then just like with slavery, you can you can make an amendment in the Constitution, but then it takes a hundred years for the courts right. to then rule on the, all the laws that were that were based upon precedent. Right? It's not. It's just not one foul swoop. Kind it of. would it would dismantle lots of institutions that have just spun off of. I mean, we would yeah. think of the prison system would have would be complete would have to be completely redone or rethought. Um, mm-hmm. Policing system uh intellectual property rights systems i mean mm. wow land yeah <laughs> uh, yep. agriculture yeah yeah so so that's that's our project you you're starting to get a, a sense of it this is what we're about and we are an ecumenical uh, coalition and i am really calling on people of faith to be a part of this um as the primary beneficiaries of the doctrine of discovery mm-hmm. so what many people don't really get is that wealth in our country and in many other places too is accumulated over generations of time so um, most wealth is accumulated by transferring money from one generation to the next to the next and it accumulates so if you take away a people's all of their wealth how will they then accumulate wealth Mm -hmm. it's not that wealth wasn't accumulated just somebody else accumulated it right 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 yeah so so that's, you know, where where we find ourselves, where Native people are impoverished, uh, some of the most um, drastically impoverished people in the world, and certainly in the United States, as a result of structural violence. By structural, I mean laws and policies right. that enforce um, violence based upon race. It's it's that that concept of wealth seems, it, it in a Western mindset, it means profit from selling something that you put in the you know either under your mattress or in a bank one way or the other you 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 have this gold cash whatever it is and you stock it up but it would seem like an indigenous way of viewing wealth would be it would be the land itself it would be this thing that you nurture and take care of so it passes on to the next generation and there's a seems like there's a a western mindset that doesn't appreciate or understand where wealth resides in in, in uh, kind of in a, in a traditional perhaps indigenous uh, worldview is is that a way of looking at the land and how the land has been removed from these communities and they've lost yeah. that wealth yeah i would say that's true i would say that we're to get looking at two parallel systems capitalism on one side and then um, perhaps um, indigenous cosmology on the other of course there are many many um, indigenous peoples in North America were not monolithic. Uh, so yeah. very many different mm-hmm. ways of looking at that. But I can speak for, you know, for my understanding uh, of my people, which is 
you know, an embeddedness in a, in a, in a closed system of mutual dependence. That is to say, um, you know, what you do is going to have impact for generations and generations. And so you have to be really careful what you do and understand it's going to impact everyone around you and not just humans, but, but all lives. It's much different understanding. Um, wealth as a concept would be more about um, uh, community and well-being than about an accumulation of money from my point of view. And mm-hmm. so, uh, so it's very different. But I, if, if we just want to look at the capitalist system <laughs> of the dominant culture, you know, that all of us now participate in, mm-hmm. um, that there is suppressed economic development in Indian country. So this is, this is as a result of the loss of land, but also um, in territories like the territory where I'm from, where folks can't even own property um, on reservations where land is owned by the federal government by executive order. So you can't even, you know, you can't even own land there. Um, and, you know, Native American people have the lowest home ownership of any demographic in the nation. Um, so, you know, the two largest vehicles of wealth accumulation, um, which is basically paying for your child's college education or contributing to their down payment, is the two largest ways people hand down wealth in addition to inheritance to their offspring you know those vehicles are denied to native people who don't have access to land um, well those who inherited the land have become wealthy on native resources and then there's land grabbing that's justified um, on native lands like for example the mining of uranium <clears throat> to yeah. develop the bomb during world war ii and now um uh, the extraction of copper to develop solar panels. So oh, wow. <clears throat> there is a history of extracting resources for the dominant culture and indigenous on indigenous people's lands and where they, you know, they don't they they don't have self-determination or the right to to govern those lands because of the doctrine of discovery. And so you also have huge environmental pollution as resources that are extracted and public health impacts. So for example, Native American women have the poorest um, maternal and infant health outcomes of any demographic in the United States. So these are very tangible outcomes. Hmm. It that really, in some ways, just sounds uh, overwhelming. Um, I mean, there's so many things that are so significantly impacting the lives of Indigenous communities. It's where do you start? I mean, how do you, I mean, it seems like when you dismantle things, you got to take one piece away at a time or, or demolish the whole thing at once. But I mean, how do you, what, what are, what are some of the things you've learned about how to start, I guess, picking your battles and, you know, which, what, what do you, where do you, where do you move uh, strategically, I guess? Oh my goodness. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things, you know, I often say, <laughs> you know, our coalition is primarily, um, uh, volunteers and I say, hey, let's try everything all at once. <laughs> <laughs> so we have working groups that and people form working groups and start working on things and, and we do our best to support it. We also have a vision that that spans um, multi-generations. So this is not mm-hmm. something that's going to be accomplished in one generation. And one of the things I really focus on is what do we have to do to prepare the people who are coming behind us so that right. you know we're doing the things we're doing now. We're setting the stage for the ones that will come after us. <clears throat> How do we prepare them? Because we know that this is going to be a struggle that goes on for, for generations. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, that, that gives me hope too. I mean, I, I experience a lot of hope. And one of the things I haven't said to you gentlemen, but it's really true is that I work um, at the behest and under the guidance and supervision of the spirit of life. And so this is the work of that spirit. And I do my best to, to use the tools that I have to accompany that spirit in this work. And so I think, oh, you know, this isn't up to me alone or even those of us that are working together, it's really up to to that spirit, and we're working hard to follow that um, with discernment and prayerful discernment, and and with um, joy and optimism. Really think about what we're doing is building the kingdom of God. So you as have, you oh, go ahead, Cody. Well, I was going to ask in that same similar vein. Do you have uh, who are some partners you work with that um, really? bring you that sense of joy and wonder? I mean, you don't have to name anyone specifically, but I mean, have you found some people in particular who maybe surprisingly uh, in this work that you wouldn't have thought of before or uh, or partnerships that you're like, wow, yes, I see the spirit moving in that person, though perhaps in the past, I would never even have thought to work with that person on this project. Yeah, completely. Um, yes. And so I can give you, I could probably give you a lot of stories, but we, we really work on two levels. We work with indigenous peoples and indigenous peoples campaigns. And so there's to be so much joy in working with indigenous peoples as they shape their own realities um, in response to the doctrine of discovery. And we work with folks here in the United States at Oak Flat, um, uh, among the Dakota people and their land recovery efforts. Um, we've worked uh, with a group uh, many years of Mayan folks in the Yucatan Peninsula as their lands are wow. taken away for large-scale agriculture. And of course, continue to work with folks in South America um, in also Central America and Nicaragua. We've partnered with the Mesquite people there. So working with indigenous peoples as they're seeking their own um, liberation and self-determination is amazing and yeah. wonderful. And, you know, last year um, I was invited to be part of a process with the, with the Ladato Sea um, for the um, laity in Scotland. And they continue to be a partner, which is so awesome. It's like, you know, as we're praying across the nation with our um, partners at Oak Flat who are struggling um, to prevent their sacred lands from being destroyed for a copper, um, for a copper deposit. Um, that is to say, um, Oak Flat, which is a sacred site, um, is, you know, being traded to um, Rio Tinto mine and their intention is to collapse it into a hole that is two miles across and 10 stories deep. So it will be completely decimated. <laughs> so as we're praying wow. across the country with them and, and preparing legal briefs to, as they went to the, um, the appellate court, um, Ninth Circuit Appellate Court last month. You know, we have folks praying with us in Scotland, which is awesome. You know, <laughs> all across the country is in Scotland and, oh, that's and cool. you know, South America and um, Mexico. And, and that's it's just amazing to um, to get to partner with with so many fabulous folks. But I want to say one of the one of the strange ones was um, we worked on a piece of national legislation um, asking for human rights language to be inserted into um, a bill. Um, related to funding for Nicaragua. And because we were working very closely with the Mesquite, we were able to do that. And, um, and we did that with, um, you know, with, with partners that 
probably didn't seem like um, people that would normally want to work with us or that we would that we would work with. But um, you know, we were able to do that together and pass that legislation at a national level. Yeah, so I would say quite quite a number. Mm-hmm. Excellent, thank you. So as as um, as recently as I think it was 2005, the doctrine of, of discovery was supported again by the Supreme Court, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. I mean, it's so this that's that's really historically quite recent. I mean, if so, here's this 500, 600 year old uh, idea that's been instituted into political systems. And if as recently as, you know, less you know, tw- than 20 years ago was also, you know, supported here, it seems like the work, um, it feels like it's, it's still at the front end of the work. There's yeah. still gathering of, of momentum perhaps, or awareness. I mean, for myself, I've, I've heard of the doctrine of discovery off and on for the last 10 or 15 years, but it was only recently that I just kind of dove into it. Uh, thanks largely to my wife, <laughs> uh, yeah. but um, and the work that she's doing. But then, uh, once I became aware of it, it just seemed so. Um, it just seemed lot. It seemed logical, reasonable. It was like, oh, that let's undo that thing. That that's not a good idea. But mm-hmm. it it took a long time for that awareness to be raised in myself. And I I don't know. Maybe I'm a little bit slow on the uptake on certain things, but. How is how is consciousness being raised, and how do we how do we help other people even become aware of this? Uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of times they can say, "Oh, hey, go read Sarah's book," or she's got a great podcast. Uh, but you know, what are some other things we can do to help people become more aware of this? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that that I really want to encourage you to consider is being part of our coalition because we work across all these different geographies and different places and folks have different gifts or different ideas about how to engage in it. And it's gonna take all of us working together to do that. You know, the the culture that we live in, the dominant culture um, is a culture of erasure. We really want to um, to deny some of the, the ugliness um, that is at the foundation or, or the front end of the, of the country's formation. And so the doctrine of discovery is really not something you learn about in school. And uh, most people have never heard of it. And I think that if you, if you're a beneficiary of the doctrine, it's easy to feel like it's abstract or not very concrete. But if you are a person that is oppressed by it, it's absolutely concrete and easy to see. And so, um, because it defines your reality. And so uh, I think that, that connection, um, putting oneself in a position to, to know of and be in relationship with those people who are, um, who are shaped by oppression is so important in terms of, you know, recognizing, oh my gosh, you know, this isn't just, this isn't just a thing that is sort of a passing fancy or of interest to certain people um, who happen to be a certain race, you know, it's of interest to all of us because we are all shaped by it, those that are beneficiaries and those people who are the victims of it. And I I do wanna say here that that folks who are immigrants, folks who are African-American, you know, BIPOC folks who who are 
they're suffering the same fate um, as a as a result of the same structures. <laughs> so this isn't really just an indigenous thing. And it's something that it's gonna take all of us um, to work on it. So, you know, our coalition is really focused on the church and um, creating all kinds of different ways for the church to interact with this so that um, so that you, so that we can take this to congregations and to um, conferences and to entire denominations um, in the hopes that those denominations will not just learn about it, but actively work to dismantle it. Have you gotten some pushback uh, in this work recently of it being too, quote unquote, woke, that kind of <laughs> uh, the resistance to social justice movements in general? How do you, how have you uh, experienced that or have you experienced that recently? Yeah, so, um, you know, I live in a pretty, in a, in a fairly conservative area, um, politically conservative area. And I also want to say, you know, because I live on a, a, a reservation, the people who are the landowners here have a, a, a vested interest in the belief of entitlement that you know they deserve to have this land their their ancestors deserve to have it because the native people here weren't doing anything with it right right yeah <laughs> quote unquote so, doing anything with it yeah that's <laughs> oh wow right. and so it kind of depends on who gets to define the highest and best use you know what is the highest and best use that's those are legal terms for the way we think about you know um, the use of land and so so i think within the community where i live you know there is a fair amount of, well, what do I say, um, conflict um, related to that understanding that the good people here are the, the descendants of settlers who came, who were adventurous and came into sort of a, a difficult place and, and made the best of it and a resentment towards the native people who still live here. Yeah, I'd say that's true. And so, so while I talk about the doctrine of discovery all the time and in every, every single um, facet of my life, it doesn't matter what facet, I'm talking about it all the time. <laughs> you know, I do think that there is, you know, um, uh, resentment and anxiety and just, you know, a lot of, um, well, I guess I guess resentment is the word I'll use, or, or skepticism. You know, I even had a, a person I've known for many years say to me, "You know, what what difference does that make? It happened so many hundreds of years ago. You know, it doesn't really have any impact today." Um, and it, you know, it's it's defined my life. Actually, it's defined right. my my whole upbringing and everything about me. <laughs> Growing up, you know, in the underclass as a person. Who's, who is the offspring of a child who was removed um, from his family and mother and ancestors and land um, during a huge uh, time of child removal, uh, which has been the most effective way of removing indigenous peoples from their lands in the United States, um, not only through boarding schools, but through the foster care system. And so, yeah, it's completely defined my reality. And yet people who, who are not um, who have not been impacted in that way get to choose whether or not they want to to think that it's a valid thing to talk about. In fact, in my own home congregation, when I started working on this almost 20 years ago, 
uh, there was a, a very loud vocal person who said, you know, I know Native people, they've never heard of the Doctrine of Discovery. She's making it up. She's trying to manipulate us with, with emotional language. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I'd say I get wow. a fair amount of that. Now I'd say also relating to resource extraction, hey, we really need to, to mine copper um, so that we can have access to solar panels. And, you know, in order to save the world, Native people need to, you know, to take one for the team. I hear. It very <laughs> oh, jeez. Take one for the team. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I know we've asked a lot of you in the past, but you know, one, one more thing. Just one more thing. Right. So you 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 mentioned um, the the atrocity of the of the boarding schools of the child removal. Mm-hmm. I, I I grew up in Tempe, Arizona, and it wasn't until recently. I mean, I don't know when it was. Maybe a couple of years ago, my wife and I were down in uh, in the Phoenix area. And we went to the Heard Museum that was just having a, a beautifully heartbreaking uh, display, interactive display about the child removal and the the, mm-hmm. the school systems. It was it was a very difficult display to kind of go through. Mm-hmm. And then after we walked out of that, we just you know, we both had lived in the Phoenix area, you know, quite a bit. And there's a there's a road right through uh, east west through the Phoenix area called Indian School Road. Mm-hmm. Never thought about it growing up. Never thought about it, and then all of a sudden we went, "Oh my gosh, this is right in the midst of town." And and so we took off out of the museum, and we went driving down Indian School Road, and lo and behold, there's a kind of a kind of a memorial of you know to the to this uh, despicable past, and um, and it's it 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 bothered me because I grew up in that with it in my neighborhood basically yeah. and had not seen it. Hmm. Um, yeah. And and I th- think there's probably that pushback, uh, maybe skepticism or denial because it's so hard to realize that for the dominant culture, we have been shaped by this reality in, in and, and we're just now noticing that the reality that we have was on the back of somebody else. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to admit. Well, yeah, I think so. And, you know, um, their, their estimate is that when Europeans walked onto this land in mass um, at the time of discovery, what's called discovery, there were 300 million people on the North and South American continents. Wow. And today in the United States, there are six million Native people in this country. And that's that is they say between three and six million. So think about the the, the loss <laughs> of that many yeah. people um, on this continent. And so and, and and this idea of child removal also didn't end with the boarding school um, era. And so right now. So in 1975, Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act to prevent that, to prevent Native kids from being removed from their peoples and their lands and legal protections were put in place so that Native children would have to, would would have preference to remain in their own traditional lands and where their tribes would have a seat at the table in in determining where they would be placed. That law has been challenged more times than the Affordable Care Act. Wow. It's constantly challenged. It's before the Supreme Court right now. The Supreme Court is determining whether or not it is unconstitutional. It's being charged as unconstitutional. And according to the states of Indiana and Texas and Louisiana, and it's a family who 
uh, a white family who has opted to adopt a native um, child and that native child's sibling that is saying that they're being discriminated against because they are not able to freely adopt these children without barriers. And they are saying that, that as Christians, as a Christian family, um, they are protecting the rights of their, of their children, their native children. And that Christian people in mass support that, um, that indigenous sh children should be allowed to be raised in a wealthy Christian homes away from, from their original lands and people. And so um, as we were invited into the process, we the coalition of, you know, securing amicus briefs or amicate briefs for, for the, the opposition, all the native tribes working together to try and preserve um, self-determination for indigenous children. And um, there was so much suspicion among native people because they said the only Christians who have ever filed an amicus brief were for the other side that Christians stand together to rescue native children from native spaces. And what that does is it effectively erases Native American people. That's the, the primary mechanism by which we now have only 6 million native people today. Just the language about that to rescue uh, just sounds like, well, why don't we create what, you know, more beneficial uh, environments so they don't have to be rescued from that if we it's it's just rather than dealing with the problem we'll just take the children wow that's and, just yeah and and there is an effort to dismantle native america and to take right. all of those lands and this is the most effective way um, to make that happen has been the most successful way there are more children now in foster care more native kids than there ever were in uh, boarding schools wow I did not know that. Wow. Yeah, me neither. Uh, uh, mm. Mm -mm -mm. Uh, well, we're getting close to the end of our hour, and there's so much more that I uh. this this is there's a there's a lot more questions now that I have about this topic than I than I had at the beginning. Uh, Fortunately, Sarah, you're going to be coming out to our area. I'm in the Boise area. You'll be coming out uh, here in the fall, and I'll be uh, maybe I'll have more questions for you at that time. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited! Yeah, and thank you for for asking me. I'm excited to be with you all, and it's wonderful because we're in the same region. Yeah, it is, and you know, and you know, Cody, Cody's on the way. You know, so maybe you drive through Clarkson, you can say hi to him. <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, it might take a little detour, but that's that's all right. So. Uh, what, but one of the things I want to do is we kind of wrap the move towards wrapping this up. I want to first just uh, ask, what are some of the other ways that you know we should become you know avenues for information, ways to uh, become aware of uh, what these issues are, and the different places and different parts of our communities that we can get engaged with the process mm -hmm. of dismantling. You bet. So. Um... A couple of different things. Let's just um, begin with the easiest ways. You can subscribe to our newsletter and get our newsletter every month. And that'll tell you about what's going on with our national campaign. So I'd encourage you to do that. And our website is www.dofdmenno.org. And you can sign up for our newsletter. Um, you know, in your own community, one of the things to, to consider is what 
how is colonization or the, the, the process of settlement described in your education system? Yeah. Um, and look into that. I mean, whether it's in fourth grade or fifth grade or third grade, how is that handled? And and is it is it actually um, providing more than one point of view than simply right. um, this is a wonderful thing that happened and these brave people went out and, and did this wonderful thing? Is there any humanization or acknowledgement of um, how that how that was received by Native people? That's the thing people can do. I think thinking about how to talk about that and describe that in Sunday school and in adult study at church is is important. Um, that's a very um, good way to think through how to um, how to engage your community. If you have a little more time and interest, um, when your legislature is in session, there's usually an opportunity. Anybody can go on and just see what bills are in play. And take a look and see what bills are related to Native people's land. So often natural resource, um, anything that has to do with natural resources, tribes are, are weighing in on that. Right. And it's possible to just kind of say, hey, where did the tribe stand and, and what is at play here? Because often people in the dominant culture are not even really aware of what of what is going on in your own state. And that's that's an easy way to find out. Um, right. You can also go to the website of whatever tribe is in your area. Of course, tribes are government structures, just like a state government. So there's more, you know, if you call the switchboard, you're going to talk to the operator. There are um, there are different sections of the government. And there's the natural resource office or all different kinds of things. But you can also probably just peruse the website and see what their what their legislative um, agenda is. That's another way to be involved. And those are just ways to kind of inform yourself. Um, who are the people, who are the first people where you live and what are their right. interests and um, how, how is it possible to join with them in, in pursuing those interests? And then you yep. can always get involved in our national campaigns. Um, we, we have, we run campaigns all the time, national and international accompanying indigenous peoples um, as they pursue self-determination. And we'd love to include you in that. Awesome. Well, that's awesome. So yeah. Cody, should, I've, I've got, I'm, I'm going to hand it over to you because you have the five oh. important questions. <laughs> okay. So I, sometimes our interviews uh, leave me at the end wondering if we should do these five, but I, I, I think we should. <laughs> I love learning more about these things. So uh, we do have, Sarah, we have uh, five questions we try to ask every guest yeah. and they're, well, there are hot seat questions. So okay, be prepared. All right. <laughs> what are you drinking? So what's your go-to drink? What are you drinking literally right now? If you have something or just what's your, uh, what do you always make sure you have on hand as a go-to drink? Yeah, I, I am right now drinking a cold cup of decaf coffee with oat milk. So it's an underwhelming mm. beverage. I got to tell you, <laughs> my, <laughs> my go-to beverage is probably um, chai tea and I drink gallons of it and it's, it's probably not good, but yeah. <laughs> drink a sure lot of tastes chai good tea. though. <laughs> you know, I think this might be the first chai tea drink it is. we've had. Yeah, yes, so. I think so. I think you're right. Okay. What are you listening to? So it can be uh, new music that you are uh, really interested in, or it could be old music you find comfortable that you make sure you want to, or it could even be an audio book. Hmm. 
Yeah, so I I listen to a lot of music, and um, my son would say all of it is old and comfortable. <laughs> uh, he, he's fourteen, and and he is a um, uh, electronic dance music producer. Oh yes, oh so yeah, EDM. So I listen to a ton of EDM um, <laughs> as I try and remain, you know, somewhat current in what he's doing in his life. <laughs> But I love um, old new wave music, um, like Massive Attack. I listen to a lot of that. Mm. Um, and yeah, and I don't know. I, I listen to a lot of music in my car. and I, I drive quite a lot um, because I live in the middle of nowhere. And yep. as I travel, um, I spend hours listening to music. Love it. So, yeah. Okay, fantastic. All right. That may be also our first EDM. That's right. I think so. <laughs> yes. Okay, right. what are you reading? Okay, so it could be something you're currently reading a new book, or it could be uh, an essay you think everyone should check out, or a journal or magazine you think, uh, or even a blog post that you think people should check out. Okay, I'm going to give you a blog post that I read that I think is fantastic. It's by David A. Hollinger. Um, it's called Christian Nationalism, Christian Globalism, and White Americans. And this is on the, I think it's the Princeton blog. Mm. Uh, really an amazing paper, very accessible, talking about the rise of Christian nationalism um, and how it's related uh, to the ecumenical movement, maybe a, a, a foil or a response to the ecumenical movement. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Sounds good. That's good. Good one. Okay. What are you watching? So it could be something you're binging on Netflix. It could be a documentary you're, you find really interesting. It could be a, a YouTube channel that you really like. Oh my gosh, you guys, I hope we're still friends after this. I hope you're still going <laughs> to Yeah. I, I hear binge... a serious confession coming up. I so. know, it is true. I binge watched the second series of um, his dark materials. Over the oh season. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So good. I don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to like it. <laughs> I, you know, I, I've, I, I've I have not looked like... at it. So I, 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 I make no judgment. <laughs> Well, it's about, it's about, well, Christian nationalism in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is. It's about a conservative church movement um, and the impact oh. that has on a whole world. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. Now I'm, I'm hooked. Okay. We're gonna, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think the reason you thought maybe is because uh, the original, you know, his Dark Materials trilogy is my understanding because i haven't read the book. i think i've read the first book but mm -hmm. the um it's essentially it's like a an atheist version of like c.s lewis or the um chronicles of narnia something like that something along those I've, lines i've heard people say that but i really think there is a strong theology in it oh yeah oh yeah yeah i don't really believe i've heard people say that i don't believe yes that. me too <laughs> right and i've read it and i i don't yeah. quite you're saying but i i i find well people will tell me for example the um the seventh seal an old movie mm -hmm. i love is uh, supposed to be an atheist but i've uh, uh an atheistic approach to whatever but i'm like golly man i find so much like I, that resonates with me and my you know connection with the the spirit like whatever is out there if it is or it isn't um we press forward with hope and faith in the light of this anyway, you know? Yeah. You know, I don't know if there's anything that really is atheistic. Even <laughs> when I read atheistic stuff like Nietzsche mm. and Satra, I still think, oh, there's a theology there that they just didn't see. So, yeah. I... 
All right. I, so I, now I, now oh. I've got to get an HBO Max subscription. Yeah, I just read it up. All right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Philip Pullman. And I, I think he's a closet Anglican. I, I really do. Honestly, <laughs> there's just a lot of good theology in his writing, not just in that trilogy, but in, I've read almost everything he's written. Anyway. Oh, that's, yeah, that's cool. That's All great. right. Okay. So what, let's see, what have we done so far? This is the best one. This is the fifth one. Are we on the fifth right? one? Nope. Nope. So. No, 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 no. Wait. So reading, watching, listening to listening. drinking. Yes, you're right. Okay. So this is our favorite question. All right. Because it has a contractual obligation along with There's, it. There's <laughs> yeah. All right. Are you ready? Craig and I show up at your doorstep. Where are you taking us to eat? Or what are you making for, for dinner? Oh my goodness. Yes, please show up to my doorstep. A ton of people come through here. And what 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 I will serve you is beef. This is a beef ranch where I live, mm. and you mm. will eat beef. I don't know if it will be oxtail stew oh, or whether that's it will be um, actual, you know, rib steaks. Um, but yeah. there will be some kind of some form of beef. Um, my family eats beef um, seven days a week. Yes. Okay. That, sounds like a, that sounds like a destination. There we yep, go. Yep. On the map. Okay. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Love it. That's it. Okay. Oh. Those are the five. You did. You did great. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sarah. And uh, I've got some. Uh, I've got the the uh, address or the way, the URL for the for the newsletter for the dismantling of the Doctrine of Discovery uh, website, uh, dod.meno or uh, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I've got that one. Let's see. Um, yeah, and then I've got some links uh, for your. Uh, you have an author's site on Anabaptist World. Hmm. And uh, are you are you involved in social media? Ways people to follow what you're up to, uh, Twitter, Facebook, things like that. I'm on Facebook, and um, yeah, I welcome people to to check out my Facebook page or our coalition's Facebook page. I'm a little bit of a dinosaur, and I'm trying to branch out. And I'm, I'm depending on the goodwill of my 14 year old to help me get on Instagram. So hopefully, oh, okay. <laughs> Oh, so, you, so you're not on TikTok yet either, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, All right. I don't know if I'm cute enough for TikTok. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you haven't looked at TikTok a lot. There's not a lot of cute out there, so don't worry about it. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for your time, Sarah. And uh, well, it, this, there's just so much in this topic. There's We just barely scratched the surface, it feels like. Yep. And uh We'll we'll highlight your work and hopefully people can follow you, contact you, uh, uh, read your materials and learn more about this project and ways that they can become involved uh, on a large scale, but also really at their local local level. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's just a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. One of the things we've tried to do in the past is refrain from editing. And at this time of year, my office is on the back porch, so frequently you might be able to hear finches, sparrows, doves, as well as cars and lawnmowers. All the talking, interviews, and conversations are rough cut, mainly because we never wanted to take the time to get overly precise and picky. Rather, we have great ideas, and we just simply want to present them. Start following, commenting, and sending us ideas on the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast Facebook page. Also, you can search for the All That's Holy 
Blue Collar Podcast by going to themissionplace.org. Go to the Media tab, and you can find all of the episodes of the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. As we're closing out, I want to give a big shout-out to At the Speed of Darkness for the music intro and outro. You can follow At the Speed of Darkness and support his music at Bandcamp. 